we're going to be in Acts chapter 2, if you want to open your Bibles there. The book of Acts chapter 2. You know, if you've been with us for uh, the past uh, year, really, we've been going through a study in First and Second Samuel. Last week we finished up the book of First Samuel. We're going to be going into Second uh, Samuel. The studies entitled "Colliding Kingdoms," and the books cover a transitional period in the in the history of Israel. It goes from the time of the judges transitioning into the times of the kings and the prophets, and this was a time when everybody was doing what was right uh, in their own eyes. And um, the recurring theme of the books is the battles of men and their earthly kingdoms, and the greater battles of men. And God's kingdom, who will rule? Who will they listen to? Who will they trust? Who will they obey? Are they going to live by fear or are they going to live by faith? And ultimately, will they focus on their own kingdom or are they going to focus on the kingdom of God? And you know, just as David and Saul and the nation of Israel had to grapple with these questions, so do you and I. We have to determine, you know, who will rule us? Who are we going to listen to? Who are we going to trust? Who are we going to obey? Am I going to live by fear or am I going to live by faith? Is it going to be my kingdom or is it going to be God's kingdom? And Jesus summed up this whole idea with a parable that he told uh, about two men who built on two different uh, foundations. Uh, Two sets of Joneses, if you will. You got, you know, Mr. Jones over here who builds on the rock. You got Mr. Jones over here who builds on the sand. And, and, you know, both of them face a storm. And, And as, you know, people who live in the world, whether you're a believer in Jesus Christ or whether you've rejected or denied the Lord, all of us will face storms. We're all gonna face trials in our life. And so you've got these two sets of Joneses, and and, and the rains came down, they blew the four walls down, and the clouds, they rolled away, and one set of Joneses was standing on that day. And so for us, what we have to do today, just as Saul's kingdom has crumbled, and as David's kingdom is about to rise in 2 Samuel, uh, in the book of 2 Samuel, I I thought it'd be a good time for us to pause and consider our own kingdoms. And, and really just take a, a look at what is God's model for the church? What, what is it that, that you know, God has established for you and me in the, in the living of our life? And, then, and, and if I say I'm a child of God, then, then I'm living for God's kingdom. And so what does that look like? What does it look like practically to build my life on the rock and not to build my life upon sand. This is what we're going to look at at today. The title of the message is The Pillars of a Healthy Church. Acts chapter 2. We'll pick it up in verse 40. And we read here, And with many other words, he, this is Peter, testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. And then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. Now, before Jesus ascended into heaven, after he rose from the dead, he went to the cross, he died for the sins of all mankind, he rose again on the third day, and after he rose again, but before he ascended into heaven, he spent a period of 40 days with his disciples. 
And, and he spent that time just preparing them for, you know, his ascension into heaven and for them picking up the baton and continuing. And, and we read about, you know, this period of time, you know, some of the transactions that, that transpired in Acts chapter 1. I'll put it on the screen for you. But we read there in Acts chapter 1, And being assembled together with them, with the disciples, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And then a few verses down from that, he continued, and he said, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now you notice there, Jesus said, you know, having been assembled with him, uh, he said, uh, uh, don't leave Jerusalem, which is instructive. I mean, these guys spent three and a half years with Jesus, having the best education anybody's ever had in, in the kingdom of God, and yet they still weren't ready. He said, you're not ready. You need to wait for the promise of the Father. He's speaking the Holy Spirit, and he said, it goes on to say, which he said, you have heard from me. And what he's, what he's referring to is back in, in, in uh, the Gospel of John, in John chapter 16, Jesus was explaining to his disciples uh, the, 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 the role of the Holy Spirit. And what happened was, Jesus there in John's Gospel, he's getting ready to go to the cross. And, and so he's preparing the disciples for this, and they're freaking out. Here's why they're freaking out. The disciples had in their mind, and the Jews had in their mind, what it was Jesus was going to do. When Jesus came, when the Messiah came, they were expecting a Messiah that was going to conquer Rome, that was going to establish the kingdom on earth. And they were all expecting that the Messiah was going to rule and reign and that they were going to rule and reign with him. They had no concept that the Messiah was going to come as a suffering servant that he came to give his life, that he was going to die in the way that he did. They didn't understand the atonement for sin. They thought Messiah was going to come and he was going to just rule and reign. They were going to rule and reign with him. And so Jesus is preparing them for the fact that, hey, listen, it ain't going down like that. And so as he began to explain that he was going to be going away, they began to freak out. And, and so Jesus is then comforting them. And so he's telling them, look, I go, I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm going to be back for you. Uh, and you know where I'm going and you know the way. And Thomas, who we know is doubting Thomas, said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. And how can we know the way? And Jesus says to him, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. And later on in the same discourse and the same exchange, he would say to Thomas, don't you know me? Even after I've been with you for so long, don't you know me? Don't you get it? Don't you understand? And so as they're dealing with their trepidation and their fear, with this idea of trying to get their heads and their hearts around the idea that Jesus is going to leave and that things aren't going to go the way that they expect them to go, and maybe you can relate with that. In your relationship with the Lord, sometimes he does things that we don't expect, and we're filled with trepidation. We're filled with fear. Like, God, it's not supposed to be this way. And, and so this is where the disciples are. And so what he begins to do in his comforting of them, telling them, look, I'm going to go prepare a place. I'm going to be back for you. 
he goes on to tell them about the Holy Spirit. He says, look, it's, it's actually better for you that I go. Because I'm going to give to you the Holy Spirit. And when he talks about the giving of the Holy Spirit, he said to them, and I'll put this on the screen for you, John 16. He said, when he, speaking of the Holy Spirit, has come, he will convict the world of sin, of what's wrong. He, and of righteousness, of what's right. And of judgment. Hey, the Holy Spirit, not only is he going to work in the hearts and the minds of men and women to say, hey, this is wrong, hey, this is right, but he's also going to remind us, we're going to stand before God someday. And this is all the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer that we would understand. Look, there's a day coming when I'm going to give an account for my life. There's a day coming when you're going to give an account for your life. And it's a healthy way for us to live as followers of Jesus Christ, to understand that there's a day coming when I'm going to have to give an account to God, right? And so he said, He, the Holy Spirit, will guide you into all truth, for He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will tell you things to come. He will glorify me, for He will take of what is mine and declare it to you. And so having obeyed Jesus Christ, the disciples waiting for the gift of the Holy Spirit, on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was poured out upon them. And when the Holy Spirit was poured out upon them, what happened was is that they all went out into the streets and they all began, in the power of the Holy Spirit, to declare the wonders of God. And by the supernatural gifting of the Holy Spirit, all of these disciples were now doing so. They were proclaiming the wonderful works of God. And they're each proclaiming it in a different language, in a different dialect. And that's significant because what had happened was there were a large group of people who had gathered together in Jerusalem for the, the worship of God, for the day of Pentecost. And, and so there, as they're, they're celebrating the giving of the law, that's the significance of that, of that in the Jewish calendar, <coughs> what would happen is that these disciples would be equipped to speak in their individual languages, because they're all assembled from different places, they're proclaiming in their language the grace of God. Just the goodness of God and what he's done. And everybody's looking on this. Some people are just, they're like, this has got to mean something, man. What will this mean? And others are like, these guys are drunk, man. They're liquored up. Look at them. They're just, they're just out here babbling drunk. Peter steps up. He's like, these men aren't drunk, let me just tell you, here's what's going on. And so what happens is Peter begins to preach the word of God. And, and as Peter is preaching, it's, it's incredible. He's speaking with power and with authority because he's filled with the Holy Spirit. And if you're taking notes, you want to write this down. The first pillar of a healthy church is teaching that is anointed by the Holy Spirit. Teaching that's anointed by the Holy Spirit. And you, you notice the result. Because what happens here, and we, we read it there, is that in verse 40, he's preaching, and it says, with many other words, he testified and he exhorted them, and he's saying, be saved from this perverse generation. Peter there is, is proclaiming by the power of the Holy Spirit the testimony of the Word of God, and, and he's doing it, you know, talking about, look, I'm exhorting you. This is what God's word says. This is the hope of God's word. And I'm exhorting you. You need to do something with this. And, and not only do you need to do something with this, but you need to repent. 
Repent means to turn. You're going in a direction that's not going to lead to eternal life, Peter is saying. And you need to turn in light of all of these things. This is what needs to happen. And what happens there as as Peter is doing this is that the people responded. They respond. Why? Well, because it's the power of the Holy Spirit working through the proclamation of the Word of God. And here's the thing is that the world today, they don't need gimmicks. They don't need hypes. They don't need self-help. They don't need psychology. The church doesn't need that. You know, you don't need seven steps to a better you. You don't need to learn about how to nurture your inner child. You don't need to learn about 10 prosperity principles for success. And That's garbage. You don't need any of that stuff. What you need is you need the, the testimony, the proclamation of the Word of God taught in the power of the Holy Spirit. And here's the deal. You know the difference. You, I pray, have experienced the difference. To where you're sitting in a message and the Word of God is being taught in the anointing of the Holy Spirit and supernaturally, it can be the most boring guy in the world. Right? And, and, and it could be, I mean, it could be more exciting to watch paint dry. But God's Word is being proclaimed in the power of the Holy Spirit and all of a sudden, something just explodes in your heart and your mind. We were at a pastor's conference recently, and a pastor was up teaching. He's just going through the Word of God expositionally, you know. And, and right in the middle of his teaching, some gal sitting up towards the front, she's like, there it is. That's it. And you've had that moment. Everybody starts laughing. The whole thing, you know, thousands of people just start cracking up. Why? Because we've all been there. You're in the teaching of the Word of God, and all of a sudden you go, that was for me right there. That was, thank you, God. You just spoke to my life. You just just ministered to me right where I'm at. And this comes when we are empowered by the Holy Spirit in the proclamation of His Word. And it's so critically important. And it all goes back to that foundational premise in the beginning of the book of Acts. A guy by the name of Luke is the one who authored the book of Acts. He also wrote the Gospel of Luke. And as he's writing in the beginning of the book of Acts, he says, in my former work, he's talking about the gospel of Luke, I told you about all that Jesus Christ began both to do and to teach. And that that word began is critically important because the work of Jesus Christ continues today. It didn't end when Jesus died on the cross and ascended into heaven. No, what happened was Jesus told his disciples, you wait upon me, you be filled with the Holy Spirit of God. And what's then going to happen? You're going to be witnesses of me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And you, by the strength and the power and the leading of the Holy Spirit of God, with the word of God, you are going to continue the work, Jesus would say, that I started. (coughs) So critically important. And so Jesus' work, it, it continues here on earth through the work of the Holy Spirit in us. We continue... It says, well, I'll just, again, verse 41, what happens? Those who gladly received the word were baptized. There's just a response. Baptism, and this isn't in my notes, but baptism is something we're called to do. There's two sacraments that Jesus left for us to do. These aren't things to earn a right standing with God, but the things that we're called to do, and they both are connected to the cross of Christ. Or we continually have to remember what Jesus has done for us, what our, pl- uh, what our plight is apart from the Lord. 
And so baptism being one of these things, and what it is is that when you are a child of God, when you have said, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he's the son of the living God, that he died on the cross for my sin in my place, that he rose again on the third day, and that by his goodness he's offered me eternal life. Well, the Bible says, well, you're called to do in obedience to the Lord in that place is to be baptized. It's to identify with the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You make a public profession to where you go under the water, the symbol of death. You come up out of the water, the symbol of being raised to newness of life. And you say, just as Jesus Christ died for my sins in my place and rose again, I, by faith in him, have died to my sin and I've risen again in Jesus Christ. And so these believers follow and they do that. By the way, if you've never been baptized, you need to be baptized. And we're going to have a baptism here in in, in just a a month or so. We'll get the date out for you guys. But if you've not been baptized, you need to be baptized. Is that outward sign of the inward change? Is that public profession of faith that, hey, I, I I am in Christ. I'm trusting in his death, burial, and resurrection. And so it says, they, they, those who gladly received his word, they were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. It's interesting, if you look in Exodus chapter 32, when the law was given, when Moses came down off, off the mountain with the Ten Commandments, he found the Israelites engaged in, in gross sexual sin. They had, they had crafted a calf out of gold and they were worshiping it and there was you know they were they it says that they rose up to play and then in the language there it suggests sexual play that they were involved in great immorality and and the reaction then when this all transpired was that boy God's people mounted up and God struck 3,000 people dead in the giving of the law 3,000 people die but here in the giving of grace 3,000 souls are added to them And so here is this great work that, you know, this outpouring of the Holy Spirit. By the way, people always talk about, you know, churches. And as our church has grown now and and, and all, and there's people who say, well, gosh, you know, the church, I wish we could just go back to the church of the first century. You know, just a little little small church. There were 3,000 people on day one, man. I mean, this is what God does. He just brings people to them and says, so... 3,000 souls were added to them, verse 42, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. And then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Listen, where God is moving and God's people are serving, signs and wonders are the natural response, the natural result. That God does this incredible moving work. Many signs and wonders were done through the apostles. And now all who believed, verse 44, were together. They had all things in common. And they sold their possessions and goods. And they divided them among all as anyone had need. Here's where their attitude was. They, Jesus had said, look, I'm coming back. And here they're all gathered together from all of these different places here into Jerusalem. they come to know the Lord. And so now they're in a place where like, we don't want to leave. We want to stay here. And so all of the believers, they're just like, well, let's figure it out, man. We'll just sell our stuff. We'll help provide for you and so on. And so this this was the attitude that's going on. Let's just divide and share. And so continuing, verse 46, with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity 
of heart. The, the idea of that phrase means unworldly simplicity. The world runs after many things. The world is consciously concerned about many things. And these believers, having come to know the Lord, they're just, they, they have an unworldly simplicity. Simply Jesus, man. And so they're, they, they, this is how they eat their food and how they fellowship together. Verse 47, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily. Those are being saved. Look, as a church, I'm at, we don't have to come up with gimmicks. We don't have to offer free gifts. Come to church and you get a free gift. We don't, we don't do, do any of that stuff. We say, come to church and we're going to introduce you to Jesus Christ and, 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 and he's going to change your life. And people come and they taste and see that the Lord is good. And, and what happens is they stick around. God adds daily to his church such as should be saved. Why? Well, it's because when people come and they experience a group of people who are loving the Lord, who are serving the Lord, who are just trusting in him, there's, a, there's an attraction to that that you cannot deny. I, you know, I've, t- I've told you the story. I got a guy I used to work with, and he comes out, and he's coming to the church, and I'm you know, witnessing to him and trying to get him to, to, to give his life to the Lord and you know, week in and week out, he's come to the church, but, he, but he, he's not ready to give his life to the Lord, but he keeps coming back to church. And eventually, man, what's the guy say to me? He says, man, I want what you've got. I'm like, dude, I, I, just, I just left everything to follow the Lord. I got nothing. I'm driving a used car that my single, mother, you know, single parent sister-in-law gave to me that's got no air conditioning. And, and, and here I am, driving. now I'm just run out of gas with you. We're sitting in the middle of August on the side of the road, sweating like, you know, Mike Tyson in a spelling bee, you know. And, what, and, and here I am, and what the heck, you, 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 what do you, you want what I've got? What, what do I have that you could possibly want? He's like, you got joy, you got peace. You got... What he saw was Jesus Christ and how he changes the life. And this is what happens is God adds to the church such daily such as should be saved because it's attractive to people. People want hope. And there's nothing more attractive than believers who are following Christ who don't have it all together. We are not perfect. You spend a day with any one of us, you're going to go, you're a piece of work, man. I mean, I got everything together, but you guys, you're... A, But there's nothing more attractive than following the Lord, than serving the Lord, than walking with the Lord. And God adding daily to the church such as you'd be saved. Man, it's just a beautiful thing. And you notice he says there in verse 42 that they continued steadfastly. You might want to circle that word steadfastly. Nearby you could write this. You could write down a single-minded fidelity to a certain course of action. A single-minded fidelity to a certain course of action. Now, if you've ever been on a successful diet, you know exactly what this is, right? How many times have we said, man, I'm going to lose some weight, and I'm all about the diet on Monday morning, but by Monday afternoon, the diet has gone away, or you're like me, and you go, man, I'm, I'm going to get in shape, I'm going to eat good, and so you go down to the store, and you're like, oh, you know what, I want the potato chips, but you know what, this pirate's booty is, it's actually got a lot less fat in it, and it's actually okay, and then you sit down and you think, oh, it's, this is healthy food, and eat the whole bag. Well, it's healthy for me, not the whole bag. That is not a single-minded fidelity. We recently had a, a competition here at the, at the church, and we called it uh, Reliance Biggest Loser, 
And a bunch of guys got together. We're all going to, you know, hey, we're all going to lose weight. And collectively, we lost like over 400 pounds. I lost like 49 pounds on this, on this bet. Well, it was because it was a competition. I was all about it. I'm like, you had me at competition, man. Let's go. But what, it, what was required for us to be successful was a single-minded fidelity. It was a matter of saying, am I going to go eat sushi? No, I'm not going to eat sushi. Am I going to go get a Big Mac? No, I'm not going to go get a Big Mac. And so what happens for these guys is that they have this single-minded fidelity to a certain course of action. And listen, your walk with the Lord requires the same thing. Your walk and my walk, if we are going to experience the growth that God desires to achieve in our lives, it requires a single-minded fidelity to the course of action that you and I are going to take. And so, so critically important that we keep that in mind. Now, there's a difference between salvation and sanctification, okay? $5 Christian word, sanctification, just simply means growing in Christ. And there's a difference between the two. The Bible says that salvation is a free gift. It's for, grace, it's for by grace you have been saved through faith. It's, no, it's not of your works. It's nothing that you can do to, to earn your, sa- your salvation with, with Christ Jesus. We prayed about that in the beginning of the message today. It's this, God loves us. He demonstrates his own love towards us. And this, that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so, so we're not talking about salvation. Salvation is a free gift. But having been saved, what now is required of you and of me is that we grow in our faith. That we work out our salvation, as Philippians chapter 2 says. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And so this is important for us to work out our own salvation. And that's what these verses here in Acts chapter 2 are talking about. It's about, okay, having been saved, how do you work out your faith? How do you build on that foundation? What are the pillars of a strong, healthy church? And by the way, the church is not an organization. It's not a building. It's you and me and us together here in this place. And so what makes us healthy? Well, it requires the steadfast Fidelity, the single-minded fidelity to a certain course of action. And notice what they remain steadfast in. And this is the second pillar. Not only do you need to be able to have teaching that's anointed by the Holy Spirit, but secondly, you need to, have a, to continue steadfastly. What's the first thing? The Apostles' Doctrine. What is that? That's the Bible. You need to have a, continue steadfastly in the Word of God. Now here at Reliance Church, we give priority to the teaching of the Word of God. We give priority to teaching the Apostles' Doctrine. It shapes and informs everything we do as a church. Starts here on Sunday morning from the pulpit. I teach the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. This is what we do. And and, and it happens not only here in the sanctuary, it happens up in the children's ministry, it happens up in the students' ministry. We teach the Word of God. We teach the Word of God in our midweek Bible studies, in our growth groups. In our men's and women's Bible study, we're teaching the Word of God. At our Mothers of Preschool, this is what we do. Our MOPS ministries, teaching the Word of God. Awana, teaching the Word of God. Our School of Ministry. Our men's retreat coming up in a couple of weeks, guys. We're teaching the Word of God. And we're taking the Word of God and we're taking the messages and we're putting them on the internet and releasing them via social media. And it's interesting. I got an email 
from, from Dr. Doan. He's a, he's a minister or he's a member of our church. And he was sharing with me that, that he is posting our sermons on Facebook. And, and the latest post that, he, that he's put out reached 5,000 people and, and over 150 views in just 11 hours. And he had one of those, a man in Pakistan, who contacted him wanting to know more about Jesus Christ. What does that? It's the Word of God. And here's why we place such an importance on the teaching of the Word of God. It's because we live in a fallen world. And because you and I live in a fallen world, we face an unholy trinity. We have the, the, the devil, we have the world, and we have our own sinful flesh that are all conspiring against us. And they all lie to us. The Bible says that, you know, Jesus said it in John chapter 8, that Satan is the father of lies. Book of Romans, Paul was talking to, to them. He said that the world tries to press us into its mold. And we're not to be conformed to the world, but we're to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. What, is, what do we renew our mind in? The Word of God. Our own flesh. In the, in the book of Galatians, Paul said this. He said, for the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another, so that you don't do the things that you wish. In other words, our flesh lusts against, you know, gets, tempts us to do things that are contrary to what God would direct us to in His Word. I've shared this story with you before. It's just such a perfect illustration. I can't think of a better one. I, you know, I used to have a boat. I'd take over to Catalina. And, you know, when you would get in a little boat, it's like 18-footer. But, you know, you go out, there's 26 miles across. And, and more often than not, it's total fog when you get out there. So you get mid-channel. You can't see land either direction. And I'm taking my dad over with me. We're going to Catalina, and we get to that place. And my dad's like, hey, you're going the wrong direction. <laughs> no, Dad, I, the compass says that, you know, Avalon's right there. My dad's like, I feel it in my bones that it's over there. I said, well, if it's all the same to you, Dad, I'm going to trust the compass. I'm not going to trust your feeling in your bones. I said, I'll tell you what we'll do. We're just going to look at the gas gauge. It's got plenty of fuel. I said, if I get to a half tank of gas and we don't see the island, I'll turn around. My dad's all right. Ten minutes later, whoop, lo and behold, there's the island. There's Avalon. There's the casino right there in front of us. My dad's like, I could have sworn that it was over there. And see, that's the thing. What happens to us is that we go through life and, and, and the, the, the devil lies to us. The world lies to us. Our flesh lies to us. And so we go through life and we're like, hey, you know, the Bible says there's a way that seems right to a man. But its end is the way of death. And using that illustration as our metaphor, you know, if we just listen to the world, if we listen to the devil, if we listen to our flesh, we're going to miss the island entirely. We're going to be just out in the wild blue yonder, man. No hope. See, and so this is why we teach the Word of God. It's so critically important. The Word of God is that compass for us. And it is so critically important as believers that we live in such a way where we, we say, this is, this is the idea. I have to trust in the compass. And doctrine has to determine everything that we do. Because it's the compass that overrides all the false information that comes in trying to mislead us. The Bible says that faith comes by hearing. And hearing by the word of God. 
Listen, if you struggle in your faith, I ask you the question, how much time are you spending in the Word of God? Is it that compass that is directing your life? I I have to take a walk with this because I'll spend a lot of time in the Word of God every week preparing a message. Sometimes I can get to the place to where it's like, well, you know, I'm really wanting to work on the message for Sunday and so I spend, you know, all of my time in that. How much time am I just spending in God's Word just to be fed and nourished and directed in in all the different areas? It's so critically important for us. There's a current hot button right now in society. It's this issue of homosexuality. And, you know, what's happening today is you've got many churches that are embracing the lifestyle. Now, why are they doing that? Here's why. It's because they don't know their Bible. Now, I'm very careful to use the word lifestyle when I talk about homosexuality. Why? Because the world would say that if you begin talking about the fact that homosexuality is sin, what they immediately are going to go to and accuse you of is being unloving, being judgmental. And, and, and a, a loving God, why would, you, why would you possibly be, you know, hateful towards these people? Well, I'm not hateful towards homosexuals. I'm hateful towards their lifestyle because the Bible says it is sin. And you and I need to understand that the Bible's the compass. There's nothing else that is the compass. And, and, and the Bible talks about that there are several different lifestyles that are going to cause us to have problems. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 says that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And there's a list of, of unrighteous lifestyles that will preclude us from, from being saved. Because you're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. But what will happen is, if you're truly saved, it's going to change the course and the direction that you go. It doesn't mean you won't sin anymore, but what it does mean is that lifestyle sin is radically changed. And so when Paul's talking to the Corinthians, he says, listen, the unrighteous are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. Those that continue in a lifestyle of sin are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. And he lists homosexuals, but he also lists fornicators and adulterers and idolaters. And so we as a church, when we teach the Word of God, we're not saying, hey, that we, we don't love homosexuals. We do. We hate their lifestyle. And just like anybody else who's caught up in a lifestyle of sin, listen, they need Jesus and they need to be set free from their sin. And so when you have churches that are embracing homosexuality, the problem is, is that they don't know their Bible. Paul said this to, to, to the, in his letter to the Romans. He said, he said, my heart's desire is that Israel would be saved. And then he goes on to say this. He says, for I bear them witness, speaking of Israel, that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. And that word knowledge, it's the word uh, epigonosco, and it means to know accurately and thoroughly. And so he says, look, they've got a zeal for God, but they don't know accurately and thoroughly what it is to really know God. They don't know the Bible. He says, For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. And that's exactly what's happening today in many churches. And so what's Paul's solution? He goes on to say this, Romans 10, 17, he says, So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. We have 
to be as Christians in God's word, and we got to know it. And that's why we focus on doctrine here. There's some things that come up, and you go, you know, well, gosh, why is this important? It's important because it's a compass heading. And if you're going to be healthy, you need to understand what the compass heading is. You might say, well, I don't agree with that. Well, God's word says what it's supposed to be and what we're supposed to do. God is the one who knows the end from the beginning. And there's things you tell your kids, don't do. Do you tell them not to do it because you want to mess with them? Because you don't love them? Because you don't care for them? You tell them not to do it because it's going to hurt them. And in the moment, they think you're the, the biggest killjoy in the entire world. They accuse you of not loving them or whatever it is. I saw some kid last night in the store. He's like begging with his mom, please, mom, please, please. She's like, no. And sometimes we have to tell our kids, no, because I know what's best for you. We had a recent example of this, just this from this last week's message. Now, if you were here, you know that that just in the course of our study, the topic of suicide came up. And I taught about suicide from a biblical perspective. Say, look, this is what the Bible says about suicide. And, and it was amazing to me, after that message in particular, I, w- I got so many emails and texts about the content of the message. Really struck a nerve. Not in a bad way, not people uh, uh, being upset. I've, I've had those emails and texts too. But, you know, what happened was I had people sharing with me just the significance and the importance and the timing of that word. Now, how do we get that word? It wasn't because I just said, oh, hey, guess what? Today we're going to talk about suicide. No, it just came up in the regular course of our study through the word of God. And that's why we go chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Because God has issues that he wants to talk to you about to set the compass of your life. And one of the, 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 the calls that I got or the texts that I got was from a member who told me that last week brought a family member with them to church. And, and so this person was saying that, you know, here it was, this subject comes up, and so later they have the opportunity to where they just feel burdened and they strike up a conversation with the person, the family member that they brought. To say, look, as, as Pastor Ted was teaching on this, I couldn't help but think of you. And the person burst into tears. And, and it ended up being this divine appointment where this, this person was actually struggling with those thoughts. Now, now, what happened? It was through the teaching of the Word of God, the God, the creator of the universe, spoke directly to this person. And that's what, that's what the member of our church told them. And he said, God talked directly to you. He knows you. He, the Bible says the hairs on your head are numbered. That his thoughts towards you are more than the sand in all the seashore. Try counting the grains of sand in your hand. And the Bible says his thoughts towards you are more than that sand in every single seashore in the world. That God's constant thought is towards you. He loves you. He wants to know you. And this person saying, look, God showed up to talk to you. Why? Well, because we continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. And so God shows up, speaks to that person. Not only that, but this now, this member of our church is equipped 
to then counsel this person according to the sound biblical doctrine that they have received. And so when you sit here and there are things that are being discussed, you need this because it sets that compass to equip you to navigate through the quicksand of this world. It's so critically important. And that leads us to the next pillar of a healthy church. It says not only did they continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, but it says then that they continued steadfastly in fellowship. Now, the word that's used here is the word koinonia. Here's what it means. It means intimacy. It means community. It means partnership. It means joint participation. Listen, the Bible is filled with exhortation that we need to be people who are united together in relationship. And especially in our day and age, this is something that's becoming more and more challenging. Right, well, because what we really do is we can, we can drive home, we can hit our garage door opener, we can pull into my garage, we can hit the garage door opener shut, and our goal and aim might be, I don't want to talk to a single person. And we just get, you know, and, and, and we have a tendency to, to, to isolate ourselves. And, and, man, the Bible's filled with exhortation that we be people united together in fellowship. This is amazing to consider. I, I, I encourage you to do this one day. Go through the Bible and check out all the one another's of the Bible, especially of the New Testament. I'll just give you a short list. We are, we're, it says that we're members of one another. The Bible says that we're to receive one another, that we're to be like-minded with one another, that we're to greet one another, that we're to serve one another, that we're to love one another, that we're to have peace with one another, that we're to be kindly affectionate to one another, that we're to encourage one another, that we're to have the same mind with one another, that we're, we need to be willing to admonish one another, to forgive one another, to comfort one another, to edify one another, to exhort one another, to consider one another. You think God thinks one another is important to say all of those things? He continues, we're called not to forsake one another or to grumble against one another. The Bible says that we're not to speak evil of one another. We're not to lie to one another. The Bible says that we're to confess our sins to one another, that we're to pray for one another, that we're to have compassion for one another, that we're to be hospitable to one another, that we're to submit to one another, that we are to minister to one another. The Bible over and over again talking about the one anotherness that we're supposed to have, the unity that we're supposed to have. That is what church is supposed to be about, is that we're connected one to another. Listen, our responsibility here, and my focus has always been in the establishment of the church, and whenever I have somebody that wants to go out and plant a church, I say, you focus on two things. You get people connected to Jesus, and you get people connected to one another. That's that, that, that right there is the single string on our guitar, man. And we just play it all day long. We want to get people connected to one another. I think about the first church that I started. And the first church that I started, I started it because we had no Christian friends in our community. My wife and I got saved, and all of our circle of influence was all our beer-drinking party and neighbors and friends. And we said, we need to get a new group of friends. And we looked around and we said, well, gosh, we don't have one. Well, let's start a church. Our buddy just laughed. He's like, you can't just start a church. Well, Jesus in it, you can. We started a church just for Christian fellowship, just to have one another, just because we knew we needed those to lift us up, minister to us. And you need it too, and you know it. And, and, and I pray, and I won't ask for a show of hands, but I pray 
that you've experienced the strength of the one another in Jesus Christ, that you guys are connected to one another in that dynamic, loving way. The book of Ecclesiastes says this, two people are better off than one, but they can help each other succeed. If one person falls, the other can reach out and help, but someone who falls alone is in real trouble. Likewise, two people lying close together can keep each other warm, but how can one be warm alone? A person standing alone can be attacked and defeated, but two can stand back to back and conquer. Three are even better, for a triple braided cord is not easily broken. The idea there, it's you and a friend, and it's Jesus, baby. And there is that one anotherness, that connectiveness, that continuing steadfastly in fellowship. And so critically important for us if we're going to grow. <clears throat> I want you to <clears throat> think about this point in light of the story I told you about the suicidal person last week. Listen, how, how was this person ministered to? It happened in the context of relationship. If it happened in the, in the sense that you've got someone who's a disciple of the Lord who's focusing on building his life on the rock, and now what happens is because he's continuing steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, and because he takes this command to be continuing steadfastly in fellowship seriously, he's involved relationally to the point to where he can say, listen, I was in the message last week, or this week, or whatever it was, and you came to my mind. Now, I'm not talking about the time when you sit in church and you're like, well, so-and-so needs to hear this, you know? I'm not talking about that attitude. I'm talking about the attitude where you are so connected relationally with your brothers and sisters in Christ that you say, I'm seeing what's going on in your life and I'm equipped with how God has spoken to me through his word. And man, I want to come alongside you and minister to you. And that's exactly what happened in that illustration. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24, 25 tells us this. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much more as you see the day approaching. Consider, it means to fix your eyes upon. It means to closely examine. We've talked about this before. A lot of times we want to be like the Wizard of Oz and say, hey, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. You know, that's the way I, I just want to, I don't want you looking at my life like that. But no, this is saying that's the way we've got to look at each other's lives. We've got to be focused on one another in that kind of a way to where we say, look, I'm, I, I'm concerned about you. I care about you. And, and, I, and I want to love you. I want to minister to you. That's the kind of church you want to be a part of. It's just that kind of place where we, where we see one another and note what's going on and we're willing to go to each other. And you know what, I will ask you for a show of hands on this. How many of you have had somebody come to you, a Christian brother or sister, says, look, I see something's going on and I love you, and you were thankful for it. Let me just see a show of hands right now. See, and we need that. We need to be engaged in this way. This is what they continued steadfastly in. Well, the next pillar of a healthy church, and I want to end on this one. I'm going to save prayer for next week, and we're going to come back to this. We're going to do the whole message on prayer next week because it's, a, it's the most powerful part of our Christian life, and it's woefully neglected. And so we're going to focus on that next week. But the next and final pillar that he talks about is continuing steadfastly in the breaking of bread. 